Hi, this is Paul. Today's video that I released was the one on natural law. As almost always with these big, long, meandering commentary videos, I'm doing a lot of thinking about, well, how, how, how are all these things coming together? And at least with some of the Winsome War conversations, I'm getting my camera adjusted here. I'm you know, in, in those sense, I'm engaging with my ecclesiastical and theological cousins. They tend to be young, restless, and reformed. Um, the CRC is sort of old, um, um, troubled, and reformed. And, but the, 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 bigger really, the bigger issues I'm dealing with are issues of the meaning crisis, issues of, well, as you'll see with some of the videos that I'm about to play now, uh, anyone who imagines that religion is just sort of going away, I don't think is paying attention. Even though, as I mentioned in this video, it's always difficult to sort of gain these far broader evaluations. It's part of the reason we sort of reach out for statistics and polling. But, but those, are, those are also quite um, imperfect tools. I, I want to begin, well, I was on that streaming. I want to begin, Nate. Um, really grabbed this video. Um, Ken Lowry, I haven't I haven't spoken with him yet, but he's another little corner of this little corner. He's got a he's got a channel climbing Mount Sophia. Obviously, a part of this new religious movements going on, and he had Jordan Wood, who is the author of the Whole Mystery of Christ, a book on Saint Maximus the Confessor. I have not read the book. Uh, Nate Heil over at Grail Country has really been advocating, as he does here in the comments section. Um, this was fantastic. Ken, one step closer to Jordan Wood being part of this little corner. It's going to happen. I can feel it. Well, it, it is happening, Nate. It is happening. And it's it's videos like this that are important. When I was sharing with, with Sam and Father Eric over on Jacob's Just Chatting channel, you know, I was, I was doing a little bit of reflection on what this little corner is. Uh, I, I think the heart of this little corner is creating a space for people to play along. Uh, Jacob was, not Jacob, but um, Chad was in the comment section there. And Chad, of course, sort of stepped back from this little corner for a little while. And I don't think stepping back is a, is a bad thing to do. I think people need to do that now and then. But the heart, in, in many ways, Chad is, is, although all of us are unique, Chad came into this little corner with the desire to participate. And, and that's really where I came into what I did with Jordan Peterson and the conversations and the commentaries. I saw what was happening with Jordan Peterson. And I wanted to play along. This is YouTube. You get to, you get to play along on TV too. And we'll, of course, um, let, let Grimm do his commenting on that because the breaking down of the fourth wall, uh, virtually not alone, all of those those key memes that Grim Grizz has brought to this little corner. And so what what we're seeing here are a community of channels. And but vital to that community of channels are the knitting together of relationships. Now this is frustrating because the truth is once once relationships begin, hierarchies begin because my channel grew of a size that I can't relate equally to everyone. And so then hierarchies develop. And that means I have some time for, for other people and not time for other people. And then we have preferences and relationships and friendships. And, 
And that whole dynamic goes and goes. It's a tremendously natural dynamic. It always sort of happens the same. But, but I think the heart behind this little corner is the idea that we can have the kinds of conversations we've always wanted to have. Uh, we can have better conversations because we're learning from each other. And the quality of the conversations is very much dependent on the relationships that we have between the people. And as, as Sam corrected me in this little talk, well, it's not like, you know, we start, we're the only ones having conversations with strangers on the internet and that goes well. No, uh, people are able to do that. We've been doing it for a while, but we're wanting to have conversations about, I think, what is most important in life and very much centers on religion. Many of us are religious figures. You can't see Father Eric with his collar or... Of course, I'm not wearing a collar as Jacob would like me to, but I, you know, I am a, a Christian Reformed minister. Sam, of course, is a biblical Unitarian, and so in that little chat with with Father Eric and Sam, we talked about that, and and just being able to jump into a stream and have a conversation with someone. It's very Protestant. It's very American. If if you want to put in the time, chances are you will find a niche in this little corner. But it, it, it's, it's something you usually sort of have to earn, and it's usually has sort of have to earn it by, by putting in the time and um, bringing value to other people. Now, Hezi, um, who I did a Randos conversation with a little while ago, um, has been doing a lot of live streams on Jacob's channel, and I think doing some of the best ones. I think Hezi has, has really been contextualizing and bringing the, con the question of the meaning crisis to an Israeli and a Jewish audience, and those are two different things. And like many of you, my, my knowledge of that little corner of the world continues to grow by listening to these individuals. I, I wanted, though, to start with this conversation and, um, and Jordan Wood's introduction here. I, I haven't listened to too much of this video yet, but I'm excited to. Nate, of course, is is one of these. At some point, we're going to have tears in this little corner, and, and there'll always be controversy about the tears. But Nate just passed 1,000 subs on Grail Country, so, so good for him. And so Nate has become one of those nexus points for this little corner. Nate is also an in-real-life estuary leader. He's a part of Vendonk's Elsnet network. So Nate is, is very much into this little corner and become a very big part of it. He's been a very big promoter of Jordan Wood and Jordan Wood's recent book on St. Maximus the Confessor. And of course, if you listen to Jonathan Peugeot, you're a fan of St. Fan of Maximus. So on we go. Let's, let's jump into this one. Yeah, sure. Thanks again for having me. Um, I, I think... I think... Now, now part, I think, of, of what is happening in this little corner is that we are in fact developing rituals and and part of the rituals that i think has has grown out of at least my randos conversation is giving time for a little bit meatier self-introduction and a self-introduction that has to do especially with one's religious orientation even though the question of the connection between religion as we understand it and define it currently in secular modern society and and how it how it plays out those are very big questions obviously but a little bit meatier of a kind a little bit meatier of an introduction in terms of who we are and how did we get here so let's let this one go a little bit i guess my perspective as 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 many people's begins in childhood i was one of those i mean i was raised in a religious home and 
so you have religious it wasn't it wasn't catholic or orthodox or anything it was pretty low church protestant and actually pretty much like like biblicist like pretty focused on just the bible you when you get together on you know for church on sunday you might sing hymns there might be a piano maybe not the minister is also the worship leader and all that stuff so uh, our minister was a, a farmer actually um so you know so that was and i know just by virtue of all of the randall's conversations his story not unique he's not alone in that but every story is unique was, but but you still have i still sort of had this sense from the for like some of my earliest memories was you know that's it's sort of cliche i guess but like laying in bed like well if god is creator of all things who is who created god and you know so having these questions and then sort of being directed in my own tradition towards the bible it's like hey the bible is, is inspired it's got all the answers you want you just have to read it and focus on that so that was like my childhood all the way in fact up till college i went to a small bible college and basically had intentions to become a minister or a you know a pastor in in that tradition but while i was there studying the bible which is sort of the the direction i've been told i have to go um questions arise <laughs> things don't don't make as much sense um as maybe they initially did or or the very process of having to make sense or you might say trying to climb this mountain that you were told here's the only way to do it here's the only path or whatever um questions arise so that got me interested i mean like i said the tradition i was raised in was very um at least sort of self-styled almost ahistorical and individualistic and there there were varying trends it wasn't centralized at all there was nothing kind of holding it together other than your personal engagement with scripture essentially so um i just i got interested in the wider question of history and tradition and what's been going on in the christian tradition I mean, that's where i started was the christian tradition that's still where i am broadly speaking but that so that search the questions that arose from trying to study scripture and i mean like in the original like hebrew and greek and aramaic and said an ugaritic and those other things just because i was like that's this is it right um so anyway got broad more broadly interested now again this is it right it's the grammatical historical the that sort of modernist beginning of and okay well if i can know the original languages then i can know and but what you learn is that once you learn the original languages first of all you're not really necessarily inhabiting that original world as you did before um, i'm having a i've previewed the first episode of after socrates and i'm having a conversation with um with john verveke about it and, and we're going to talk about this this inside outside dynamic because that's a very big part of this as we're also dealing with religious pluralism and in many ways that's that's really a lot what this video is about but also the meaning crisis in the context of religious pluralism interested, uh well interested in the broad christian tradition how they had handled scripture that was my inroad was well well if, if the bible if scripture is this inspired source or found from which wisdom you know sort of comes down the mountain um uh and in cascades then then I, i'm really interested in how other people have engaged that in this tradition so that so it was really originally my interest in christian tradition broadly speaking was in how they treated and handled and read script holy writ 
So that turned out to be fruitful, but also sort of really, uh, caused more questions because it turns out they weren't really reading the scriptures the way I had been taught to read them. <laughs> now you could you could on one hand very much imagine sort of a Bart Ehrman turn turn here, where Bart Ehrman was ra- he was raised in a non-Christian home and then becomes a Christian in an evangelical ministry and then decides he wants to go to learn more. So I think he goes to Moody Bible College and he learns there. And from there, he goes on to seminary and uh, Bart Ehrman just, you know, deconstructs his way right out of the faith and then still becomes a someone who was a, a scholar of the New Testament at Duke University, writes books about skepticism, yada, yada, yada. So, well, that's not the only way this story turns, obviously. So I was like, wait, hold on. What is this thing called allegory? What is this figurative stuff? Like, I don't understand that. So, in fact, I've been told that that is a way to not take it seriously, right? Because then you can impose your own personal wishes and desires and truths and vision onto the text. I- and, and that point that he makes right there is actually really important because modernity and the historical the 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 grammatical historical way of interpreting scripture arose for a reason and the dismissal of allegory arose for a reason and the protestant reformation happened for a reason now one way to understand a lot of human history is uh, overcorrection back and forth and back and forth and a lot of what we're doing now including now with the inclusion of cognitive science, understanding how we learn, thinking about history. We're just in the middle of a nexus of just a torrent of new information now suddenly available to everyone. And yeah, things are continuing to develop. So Jesus. So, so uh, um, anyway, so that's, so I, obviously I had to wrestle through. I mean, that was my main question for a long time was why do they, why do they think they can do this to scripture? Like what justifies this? Uh, and so I landed on, uh, origin of Alexandria, of course, as one does. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I would say broadly that the Alexandrian Christian heritage, and even to this day, I would say Maximus, in my opinion, stands in that tradition, St. Maximus confessor. He's the one I wrote the book on, um, that that's the tradition that has, that's the aspect or sliver or part of the tradition that has uh, sustained me spiritually and personally more than anything else. I mean, there are certainly, there's so much else out there as well. I don't mean to, to um, diminish that, but um, for me personally, that's really what's that along with um, engagement of a lot of modern Eastern Christian sources um, in different forms. I'm in my early twenties, I read Dostoevsky's entire, all of his works <laughs> because I'd heard the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Ron Williams had done that. I thought, well, that sounds a cool thing to do. I'm going to do that. So anyway, so there's, there's been a lot of different. The other Jordan, Jordan Peterson would be, would be proud. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's, that's the kind of, that's where I'm coming from. I mean, that's, it's, it's always been a search. There's always been questions. There's always been a thing, things presented to me that on the surface initially made some sense, but then you start prodding a little bit and you realize that, uh, there's so much more not only not only perhaps this the surface doesn't make sense but there are so many other surfaces below that one mm-hmm. that you start contemplating right and it's almost like it is exactly as you have pitched this you know it's the sort of climb it's and it seems like you can't see the top the the summit is sort of impenetrable because of the 
the, the haze is, as it were, maybe, maybe it's the Mount Sinai or something. There's like a, a cloud settled on top, but, um, and so you constantly are, are progressing. And so, so yeah, anyway, broadly Christian, uh, but not really, you might say his, historic Christianity, if you want to use that label, that wasn't my background, but I found my way into that. And then since then, I've, I've been, I've also, I've often been, uh, you know, like maybe his origins fault, he's sort of the, the one who you know, poisons my well early on, but I have always been attracted to those that somehow were able to strike the balance between an amazing rootedness, as it were, in the history and tradition but also with an incredible sense of creativity mm -hmm. and of speculative imagination and, um, and an ability to not just answer questions that are unresolved, but to generate new ones, this sort of ever flowing fount pouring forth. And those, that, and, and those are the people that have really captured my, my, uh, my attention and sort of my mind and my spirit. So th that's, I'm now Catholic. I was, I became Catholic about, was it like eight years ago something like that i became uh, catholic eight years ago and there's a whole backstory there and probably a lot of uh, my of my co-religionists perhaps regret that i did become catholic and, and that i remained catholic because i'm not I, I don't always feel uh like the most comfortable as one but um <laughs> but it's sort of an ongoing wager for me it's like you know catholic universal catholicos like if anything is true, it should surely be able to be accommodated by that perspective, even if even if the tradition itself doesn't yet recognize that. And this is sort of what way it goes. So anyway, that's where I'm at now. Uh, so I'm a Roman Catholic who is mostly almost always spiritually and personally and intellectually sustained by Eastern sources, Greek all the way up through Russian thinkers. And and yet my earliest background is really Protestant primitivist biblicist. So that's that's the I'm now a father. I've got four children, and I do find that, and I'm a stay-at-home dad actually. So my I do find that my most <laughs> existentially perhaps useful objects of meditation come from my children <laughs> now. So wow, that's a that's a great little that's a great little randos rando's introduction to a um to an author who's written a rather expensive book <laughs> that i haven't read yet i'm not gonna i I'll, I'll 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 plunk down 10 bucks for a book that i may or may not get to but i'm not gonna plunk down 50 40 bucks for a book that i may or may not get to we'll see but again i um part of what's developing is a tradition around how to do introductions, and that's a great rando-style introduction. And I want to then go to this one. So Jacob has been um, really wanting me to have a conversation with Rabbi uh, Rafi Mullet, which I'm certainly open to. Uh, but as as I said in this little corner, we sort of it's an organic thing the way this community sort of gets knit together, and there's different corners of this little corner and. Part of the, the real gift of this little corner is being able to talk across barriers and compare notes across barriers and learn about things that confront us. So, and I think I think Hezi, what he's doing, I just have a, a world of admiration and respect for Hezi and um, and how he's handling himself and, and what he's pursuing with this. So let's uh, let's go here.
I wanted to know if we could just do just a small introduction. I don't know sort of your background story uh, so much, or like where are you coming at this from? What are you doing in this space? What does the rabbi do? Okay, a small introduction. A small introduction. Mm. I don't know how to make a small introduction, but um, okay, so my back. First of all, this guy's from Brooklyn, and uh, I don't know how old he is. He looks younger than I am, but he and I definitely didn't grow up too far from each other. Ground is, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I mentioned that Jacob's uh, broadcast. Did I freeze? Am I still with you? You're with me. Yeah, for some reason, I keep seeing myself freeze, but I don't know why. Um, as I mentioned on Jacob's channel, I grew up in a bit of a Jewishly confusing home mm -hmm. because um, my two parents grew up secular and my father became religious after they married and my mother did not. You know, it was kind of like, well, I didn't bargain for this and we got married, so I'm, I don't agree to it. But um, so I grew up with kind of that mixed message of, you know, keeping Torah on one hand and not keeping Torah on the other hand. And my parents split up and, you know, I had to go through a lot of personal soul searching to decide on my path. And it wasn't always simple to know which way things were going. Now, now this is a, as you can tell, if you look down at the bottom, this is a five hour live stream. So those of you who are looking to, to learn a lot, there's a lot of nomenclature in here that I don't understand. Um, but, there's a there's a lot in here, and I've, I've I've listened to probably most of it now, and I'm in a little bit of it at one point. I played some of that in the last video, but again, part of this little corner is also the learning channel, and 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 doing a lot of learning about the way. Oh, in this in this conversation, the way the meaning crisis. So the way the meaning crisis and the way modern modernity technology are just disrupting long historical religious communities, but also at the same time, in some ways, breathing new breath into them. Isn't that interesting? But in all that mess, I got a modern Orthodox education and a, 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 I would say a prestigious modern Orthodox school. Um, I, I, got involved with NCSY, which um, turned me on really to Yiddishkeit. I would say prior to that, what my modern Orthodox education had accomplished was to turn me off totally from Judaism and make me want to be anything but Jewish. And um, I was pretty set that that was the path I was going to take. Now, now, I thought this comment was tremendously interesting because it sounds a lot like a lot of evangelical deconstruction, doesn't it? was jump off the deep end um, into, you know, just being anything but Jewish. And uh, when I accidentally ended up involved with NCSY, and for the viewers who don't know, it's a, it's a youth group that's not school-oriented. It's what you might call informal education or experiential education. It's a youth group for Jewish teens from any background. And I got involved with that uh, almost accidentally, which is a long story that I won't I won't go into, but I would say in that environment, I was finding myself enjoying being Jewish and doing Jewish things for the first time in my life. And at the end of my high school years, it made me think like I was 
on the path to say like, when I turn 18, I'm out of here. And now I almost feel like I discovered something new that I don't even really know what I'm abandoning. And I thought I did, but now I see I don't. So that's when I decided to Again, you can hear, you can find very interesting parallel stories amongst evangelicals. And that's why, again, part of what we're dealing with here is pluralism. So you have these patterns that obviously cut across different religious frameworks. Does that make them all the same? No, there's plenty to disagree with. And um, there's, there's some disagreeable people around. But just fascinating listening to his story and he's going to keep going then we're going to get again then we're going to get into Hezi's story a little bit more to go to israel for the year after high school which a lot of a lot of people with that upbringing do but i was totally opposed to it and i changed my mind on that i ended up spending a year in or Semayach, the yeshiva that that jacob mentioned followed by finishing my college degree or doing a college degree altogether. But I would say that one year in Or Sameach, when I was in this very warm, nurturing, mature yeshiva environment with teachers who were extremely scholarly, um, but also at the same time warm and embracing, kind of like, like a family. And I lived in a community where people were very committed to Torah and Torah kind of defined their life in a way that I had never seen in the modern Orthodox world, where it's just kind of like, you're, you're like growing up, my identity was like, I'm an American kid who happens to be Jewish. And my obligations as a Jew kind of get in the way of the other part of my, of my identity being the American kid I want to be. Judaism was in the way stopping me from being happy. And here I saw a place where people, their entire life was defined. But this Judaism was in the way, stopping me from being happy. An American kid, definitely. By Torah. Um, it wasn't just like a hobby, you know? It was life itself. And I, I got very turned on by that and, and getting to know some of these families, going to Shabbos meals and things like that. I just saw something I had never seen before. And I said, this is so beautiful. I want this, you know? So even though uh, I, I went to college and that's a whole other story, my, my basic overall trajectory was, I wanna go back to Yerushalayim, that's Jerusalem. I wanna go back into Torah study and I wanna build the kind of life that I saw there that others were building. And I did that after college. I went back to Jerusalem to study in, in Or Sameach. Uh, I got married. I spent a number of years in the Kolel, which is basically what married men who study in the yeshiva are called the Kolel. And I got some rabbi papers while I was at it, uh, training in, uh, in, in pedagogy and Jewish outreach, what we call Kiruv, uh, what's, what's called rabbinic leadership and and uh, I ended up actually falling so in love with the lifestyle that I, I stayed in, in Jerusalem building my family for about seven years in various yeshivas in Kolalim, including uh, Torah Moshe, also known as Tomo, for those who are aware. Um, I learned in Rav Yitzchak Berkowitz's Kolel, the Jerusalem Kolel, which is, is quite well known. Uh, Rabbi Berkowitz today is the Rosh Yeshiva, the dean of uh, the Eishat Torah Yeshiva, which is very well known. And Eventually, you know, uh, s seven years and uh, 
three and a half kids later, because we had our fourth on the way, we moved to New York. Uh, I taught in New York for three years. And then we moved to Seattle, Washington, where I taught for eight years. And now we're living in Houston, Texas, where I'm teaching. And all along, I always felt that the same fire that was ignited under me, I felt all along the way I had that ability to kind of light other people's fire. That was the the experience I had interacting with others is that just like I was fired up, I was able to get other people fired up about Torah and Judaism. And it was very rewarding, fulfilling for me to be able to do that, which is why I pursued a career in education. But when I kind of found the online space, I saw potential there to do much more than what I was doing in my quote unquote nine to five. So now I, I should interject here that I've had a lot of a fair amount of conversation with Jacob and and the Jewish community is quite concerned that they not be understood as proselytizing in anything like this. Although someone growing up in, say, a church that Jordan Wood grew up in might say, boy, that sure sounds like a testimony story and it's going to be followed by an altar call. But that's not the purpose here. And my understanding of his mission is to, as I talked about with respect to negative world, neutral world, positive world, Tim Keller makes the observation that in Christendom, Protestant America, the goal is to energize dormant Protestants. And my understanding of his goal is to energize um, secular, irreligious Jews into wanting to study Torah. Now, there's a ton of interesting talk in this whole video about Torah and when we get into Hezi's story, we'll get into a little bit more this question of, okay, well, how does this work when you you flesh it out? Now, one of the things that is deeply part of American religious liberty is allowing small religious groups to not only maintain individual individual freedom, but to allow small, small religious groups to practice their religion together. That's if you get into questions of religious liberty in America, those issues come up a lot because many the, the part of part of the reality about religion, even within a secular frame, religion S, is that you can't do it alone. And and part of what's interesting as we're watching sort of this, oh gosh, what to call it sort of this individualistic, I mean, new ageism is extremely individualistic. It's extremely evangelical. There's no hierarchy. Um, it's, it's sort of you be you, you practice you, whatever works for you. If you find someone who's sort of on the same page, that's great, but you're not going to, you're not going to gather anything or build anything together. Now, this is very interesting doing this video on the advent of, of talking to John Verveke about his project, because these issues will come up. All of none of this stuff is irrelevant. So I, I was just really struck by his introduction here, and that again, if you grew up in a church like Jordan Wood just described, you would say, "Boy, this is this sounds like a this sounds like testimony time." Where I grew up in a broken home, and it was you know, and it was secular, and then I found Torah, and I found studying it, and I found this whole beautiful way of life. Um, Hyun Chu has, has recommended Rami to me, which is a show on Hulu. The, the show is quite vulgar. Apparently, it's a stand-up comedy that does it. So 
especially in the first episode. There's a lot of sexual vulgarity in it. But what struck me about that show, though, is here you have this young Islamic kid growing up in North Jersey and trying to weed his way through his roots and religion. And again, this idea that religion is going away, the, the modernist subtraction story is dead. It's just dead. And even though we see people deconstructing, so on and so forth, they're not deconstructing into some sort of Sam Harris. Even Sam Harris has an app about what many... Christians would look at as quasi-religious meditation, okay? So religion isn't going anywhere. It's never been, it's never disappeared. We just sort of added some new definitions to create sort of this space of secularity whereby we could stop killing each other over many of these ideas. But, well, we'll get on to Hezi's speech once, um, once uh, Rabbi um, Mola is done. Over time, I kind of created this online persona um, and different social media accounts where I try to spread my excitement for Torah in the various ways that I do. I would say it's still at a, something of a fledgling state, but that's kind of where we find ourselves now. People have, thank God, been attracted to my teaching, and so I've been invited on different platforms, like Jacob mentioned, Tanakh Talk now, which is a rather large channel where I teach regularly. I'll be teaching this afternoon, the Parsha class. Um, Jacob reached out to me, having seen me on that platform. We connected and finally spoke kind of face-to-face, quote-unquote, yesterday. Now we're talking, so that's kind of where I've been and where I am now. Okay, thank you so much for sharing. That definitely puts things into a certain uh, context for me. Um, I'll, I'll give you a little follow-up on myself, and then uh, uh, we'll dive in a little more. So, uh, born and raised in Israel, uh, my mother and father made Aliyah, uh, ascended. They moved to Israel uh, uh, in the early uh, 80s, a few years uh, following uh, my twin. And again, Jacob could do a commentary video on this because they drop terms and I listen to him. I'm like, I don't know what that means. My sister and I were born here. The rest of my siblings were born in the States. Um, but I, I, I grew up here all my life. Uh, what you considered, again, these are these terms are sort of loose terms, but Datilu uh, Mi, so national religious, which is sort of like Israel's version of modern Orthodox, but... Uh, Potentially, at times, considered uh, uh, a little more religious, but I don't know if that's even true anymore. Um, uh, but definitely a a, a very uh, Torah-filled family, and the pursuit was, while there was definitely a modern pursuit of my father's a professor, my mother was, I mean, she taught, uh, she taught Torah, but um, she also was an educator. Uh, but there was constant uh, learning, and that was sort of the framework around that. So my father was a psychologist that was being, you know, doing psychology via the prism of the Torah and then how that relates to many different things. So uh, that was always the, the framework. I, uh, after high school, went uh, into uh, what's called an Israel Hezder program, which is you learn and you do the army, but I stayed there a little longer. I ended up being there six years uh i also started uh, on a track for my rabbi papers but uh i was doing it for the money and the women so i uh i stopped uh <laughs> exactly i i uh 
I stopped midway. That's interesting. Uh, and I, I, in, the, in my army services, I was a, I was a chaplain in the Air Force, and I uh, spent when I came back from the army, I did uh, two more years in uh, in yeshiva. It's called, uh, it's in the old city called Yeshiva Nakotel, the 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 Western Wall Yeshiva, and I was a. It's called a Sho'elu Mashiv. Uh, you get asked some questions, and sometimes you have an answer for them. And I would give uh, some classes on uh, some Jewish philosophy uh, and theology. Um, and But ultimately, I then left that track, got married, went into law school, uh, worked as a lawyer, stopped, and uh, went into a design and architecture career and have been, have been doing that for the last 10 years. Uh, wow. So, definitely, definitely got off that track. However, uh, I have always been uh, uh, doing my own uh, learning and I, I hopefully growing uh, 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 internally and externally. But I have the opportunity to constantly be um, interacting with different clients of mine from usually from the states, and they come from different. Some of them are reform, some of them are modern orthodox, some of them are uh, uh, what we would call yeshivish, I guess, which are a little more, um, how do you best, how would you best categorize that? Uh, a good question. I right. mean, like yeshivish, right? So, you know, so, people right. say so, ultra orthodox, right. people yeah. say. Yeah, sure. So more. I mean, it's, it's, I take uh, some offense to that, not from you, obviously, but yes. So a little more orthodox or seemingly so. And um, I, due to my, the nature of my uh, job, when I'm with them, so it's usually three to four days of intense shopping. Now I pick them up early in the morning at around nine. I drop them off at around eight o'clock at night. It's a lot of driving around Jerusalem. We can't be talking about what color their tile is for all those hours. So we always get into education, religion, the status of the Jewish people. These are things that are on uh, are on my mind constantly. As it relates to this little corner of the internet, there's here there's they discuss the meaning crisis a lot, and I was seeing how, while in many ways religions in general and Judaism, I think also specifically has been protected in a certain way from the meaning crisis. However, I do feel that it is, it is making its way uh, towards religions in general and Judaism. And I was trying to try to anticipate or try to see, you know, what what this means towards the community. So, having said that, uh, because the conversation with Jacob, while informative, was sort of a mix of conversations, I was thinking of discussing sort of the interior status of the Jewish community with you a little, and then having a conversation about the exterior relationship that we have with other nations, other religions, potentially, if that would be okay with you. Yeah, well, I'll see what I can contribute. Now, oh, stupid car. Now, what, what has he, first of all, his, his, what he's basically getting an opportunity, because as he described, just by virtue of his job, 
he's he's talking to deeply Jewish people. Um, I'm sure some of these people are moving to Israel from the United States, and they're doing so for religious reasons. Again, for me, just having lived in gospel studies for such a long time as a pastor, just just thinking about all of these, the book of Acts in chapter 6, where you have these Hebraic widows and diaspora widows all in Jerusalem, the Greek-speaking widows. Um, you, you've just got people moving to Israel, having lived out in the diaspora, and then coming back to the, coming back to the motherland, yada, 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 and then he starts talking to them. And so part of what I later on, I don't know if I'll play it in this video or not, I played it in my last video. Part of why I'm so interested in these conversations is when you're discussing these things within a Christian frame, it gets very difficult because a lot of the confessional differences and historic disagreements will sort of bubble up and we can sort of lose sight of, well, what is technological disruption doing to us? What is globalization doing to us? And, and as I also mentioned to them, what, one of the interesting things, and you'll see this in my Sunday school class, is that when you look at the way the Bible deals with the universal and the particular, Israel is almost always dealt with as sort of a microcosm of the world. Your priesthood of all believers. Well, priests are sort of a separate class set aside. Um, priesthood of all believers. Sorry, Jacob. Uh, Book of Exodus, um, priest to the nation. So Israel is my chosen people, priest to the nation, so on and so forth. And, and what has happened in, maybe I will play some of that because Joseph, Joseph comes on to the live stream and, and we talk there too. But what I see, in, and this isn't the first time that Hesse has brought this up. This is obviously part of what has drawn him to the little corner. This is something that he's looking to work through. And he's looking to work through by sort of watching Christians and comparing notes with Christians because he's, he's obviously watching me. But also then obviously comparing notes with all these different factions of Judaism. Now, when Jacob came out to Sacramento and he and I went to Outback Steakhouse, I had a good chance to let Jacob educate me on the innumerable factions of Judaism and what all of the labels mean, and they often don't mean anything like they mean in Christian terms. So there's this whole other world that it takes a little while to get up to speed with, but Again, watching the parallels of the meaning crisis rippling through a place like Israel. And again, part of what draws me to this is that I watch, for, for many Protestants, America is their lost kingdom. Protestants had nearly unique control of the cultural and political entity that was the United States before the Second World War. A lot of what happened in the Roosevelt administration, Franklin Roosevelt was one of the first who brought in Jewish cabinet members, Catholic cabinet members, to the point that Aaron Wren just recently did a video on why Catholics are in many ways outperforming Protestants in terms of becoming elites in American society and, and particularly in American conservatism. It's a really interesting thing got to be careful how I word this, thinking of Dave Chappelle and Kanye West. Um, I'll say it this way. Many Jews have thrived in America and have ascended to some of the highest levels in society and culture. We have not yet had a Jewish president, but um, many Jews in America have ascended to the highest places in, in the culture. 
And, and so over the last 75 years, Protestants have in some ways been the ones who have sort of had to take a step back. And now we have currently have a president who identifies as Roman Catholic. I'll let all of you Catholics fill in the comment section on that. But most of our presidents have been Protestant and continue to be Protestant of one flavor or another. But this is a big part of what's going on in terms of the winsome wars and the politics in America. And so it's just absolutely fascinating to me watching Hezi and Yosef and many Jews process this question of, you actually have a state of Israel and it's increasingly non-secular. What on earth does that mean? How is it supposed to work? And it's not an insignificant state. And of course, this is going on all over the Islamic world in varying degrees and is, is now going on in, in India that has become the, their latest president, much more self-consciously Hindu, raising the tensions and much more violence between Hindu and Buddhist populations. It's going on in, in China, suppression of certain Islamic populations. Uh, religion's back on the menu, boys. And... Um, We've all got a lot of work to do on this. And Hezi is, is definitely working through these issues. And he has he sits in a rather particular, unique place to to talk to people and to once to just have good conversations with people about, okay, you and and as it turns out, well, you're designing kitchens. How many how many stoves will you need? Because of course, meat and milk and all of these dietary things. So I just find I just find this aspect very interesting and I think perhaps potentially productive in terms of trying to think through the kinds of conflicts in my own sub-communities and cultures. Right. You know, so I don't one consider myself is an one, expert. One, one is um, on, on the interior front. So this is something that I've been on my own little crusade and I've been talking to some less, some more prominent rabbis in Israel about these topics. And it would be interesting to me sort of to gauge where, where you're coming at this from, uh, from your position. So uh, as someone who uh, does his best to adhere to the guidelines and, and, and lifestyle of an Orthodox Jew, best of my understanding, um, it is very important for me to uh, maintain this divine operating system we have called uh, Judaism. And uh, I think it's fantastic. I think it's wonderful, you know, Judean Christian values and where the world looks at today. So there's a whole nice package that Judaism comes, comes with. However, uh, uh, due to its divine nature and its, uh, its system that it's built over the last 2000 years of exile, um, there are uh, times when the, uh, the Jewish community and Jewish leadership is required to make adjustments or certain changes, which we believe to be divine changes through their authority to do so, that allow us to adapt properly for uh, the changing times. So okay, and so there you see the problem of adaptation, which I've mentioned many times. If you read the book of Exodus closely and Deuteronomy closely, you'll see adaptation. And the Jewish re part of the difficulty here is that Protestantism is so deep in American life and culture that until 
this gets into, again, the positive, neutral, negative world. Through most of the 20th century, being Protestant was just being a good person in America. The, the practices and lifestyles were so embedded. Now, you had different ethnic versions of Christianity that had their particularities. For example, I've often said that in the Christian Reformed Church, we were fairly Sabbatarian. That was not unique to the Christian Reformed Church, but uh, we were fairly Sabbatarian. And I was dating my wife, whose mother was um, dispensational Baptist. And so we wouldn't go out to eat or purchase anything on Sunday. They would go out to eat on Sunday. We could drink alcohol and smoke. Uh, they couldn't do those things. So you had particularities, but so much of the culture, there was such a deep cultural agreement between Protestantism in America and America. Okay, so of course, Jews and Catholics were in some ways out in the middle, middle of the 20th century. Jews and Catholics were led into the club. Obviously, after 9-11, there was a big conversation to what degree can uh, Muslims be enfolded into this, um, brought into this supposed melting pot that is America, and European nations having a more difficult time on that because obviously French is an ethnicity, and so going from an ethno-national, uh, an ethno-national to a credo-national state is a very difficult one. But, but Hezi is, you know, working through the meaning crisis in real time in a Jewish state that was, that was created in many ways. I mean, it isn't in some ways the nation of Israel one giant, <laughs> one giant Benedict option? I mean, think about it that way. Okay, now you've got control. What are you going to do with it? How, how much of that Torah will you bring in? What kind of interpretation and change and adaptations can all of you agree with? How will you make come to those agreements, especially when I go back to my conversation? I don't want to mention her name because we had to take her videos down. But a, a young Catholic woman who was living amidst sort of Benedict optioning Catholics in America wrestling with that and you get this intensification in the community so whether it's uh, an example of uh, an extreme example of one should not write down the oral torah to then the need to write down the oral torah to one should not take get paid for teaching torah to then we could now get paid to teaching torah one should not teach women torah and we then manage to find the room where that happens um and, and while people could look at that as, you know, how is it happening with a divine system, if, you, if we look at ourselves as constantly growing and constantly digging in deeper and understanding more, we could see how these truths are, are always there. However, um, so far, the religious community and leadership has been successful in being reactive to uh, the world's changes and, and making these changes uh, slowly and methodically. Uh, it is a very dense web. And even if there are seemingly things that seem uh, uh, less relevant uh, for cultural reasons, historical reasons, uh, medical reasons, it's, it's not so easy to just you know take out that Jenga tile because you might be damaging the foundation. And 
one has to take that obviously very seriously when also when considering making these changes. However, I do believe that uh, increasingly the, the rate of change in society, technological, uh, uh, psychological, um, and, and now biological and technological are happening in a rate that far surpasses anything the Jewish community or the community in large has ever dealt with. And um, from what I've seen from my conversations is I get answers where I get looks of, yes, what you're saying is an issue. Yes, we understand. And my issue to them always is, but I'm a designer architect. Like, why am I having this discussion with you? You know, like this is, these are your discussions to be having. I'm just here saying, hey, you know, the canary in the coal mine. So the examples I give them would be. Uh, and and, and the, the question is, well, shouldn't your, and I don't even know the names of all the different Jewish institutions, but shouldn't this be a conversation you're having with your rabbi? Shouldn't this, I mean, in Christian terms, I said, this should be what the church and the pastor is all about. And, and this is part of the reason for the development of estuary and the development of this little corner to have these conversations because we've got a lot to talk about. And and whereas we might not have 613 commandments we've got to deal with, and actually Rabbi Mullet has a very interesting conversation a little bit later about, well, Gentiles don't have to. And that for me then, that, that just, you know, am I a Jew or not? Well, um, you know, does my genealogy go back to David? Um, there's a bunch of Cohens in my family tree, so or maybe Levi, I, I don't know. I mean, these categories then suddenly are important. And obviously, in a, in a Jewish context, in some ways, there's a lot less fluidity than, let's say, in, in a Protestant context like I grew up in. Um, you know, there's a CRISPR technology. I don't know if you're aware of CRISPR technology. It's uh, with but, the genes and things correct. like that. So in China, the, the doctor was arrested, but he took two embryos and made sure they can never get AIDS. And he also played with their uh, intelligence. Now, um, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, when I'm tweaking genes, are we telling people, uh, no, you shouldn't pick, pick the best of your genes for your child and how tall he's gonna be and how smart he's gonna be. And what what does community in large and the Jewish community think about that? Are we not doing that? And then our kids are not competing with other kids. If you are tweaking my IQ, what are my responsibilities toward my family, toward my learning? If I decide to do so and my wife doesn't want to do so, would that be a reason to divorce her? Because now we are completely having different understandings of reality. Um, if I could clone all my body parts, should I do so? And if so, can I take live more reckless lives? Um, if the whole Jerusalem eventually moves to be a smart city, also 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. My fear is not only does religion know how to somehow adapt to that, it's also the mindset of there are families today in some communities where a child will have a relationship with the Sabbath and him thinking he's doing something that let's say would be uh, uh, problematic from from the the law point of view but then he finds out that in 20 years it's no longer problematic how yet however his relationship is destroyed with his mother based on something that at the time she thought this is exactly what god wants or at the time this is what god these are what the rabbis are telling me 
what God wants. And now it's easier to look back a thousand years and be like, well, that change happened now. It's going to be much harder to have that conversation if 10 years I look back and I'm like, well, that was different. And then again in 10 years being like, well, that change happens. And I, I think to myself when another example is, would be, um, and this is not to sound too controversial, but out there in the world, right? If I was growing, I grew up in a quote, modern house and I wanted to do my report about Moses for school. So I go to my father and my father goes to his library and gives me some books. Seemingly with a new uh, AI uh, little chat uh, uh, that's going on right now that is just giving you answers. Or the second Elon Musk gets this in my head, which he's already doing now with Neuralink. I'm not going to ask my dad for the information for the report. I'm just going to do the thing. And then I'm going to go to my dad or my teacher that's not ready, ready for this response. And I'm going to tell him, um, dear teacher, what do you think about the fact that Ramesses II's tomb is like the exact size of the tabernacle? And who's this Freud guy? And what is he talking about Moses? And there's a guy named Sargon of Akkad that he predates our story in like a basket. So what's that? And if the teacher has no frame of reference, how to deal with this or seven kids coming to him and being like, wait, 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 or a student coming to a rabbi and asking him a question, rabbi gives answer. And then student shows him 17 different answers online from around the world of quote unquote, uh, uh, bona fide rabbis. What is his response? What does that make to the trust between those rabbis? Um, so that's pluralism information. It's all there. That would see like my interior concern is as I see the communities are bifurcating, I, I get very nervous that uh, we are end up turning into really different sects of religions and turning into different versions of how, uh, how we relate uh, to God. And while in exile, something like that was, there was room for that with the 70 face of the Torah, when you have now on the ground a government that if I took a zoom out, I'd be like, wow, the most religious government in Israel, maybe since the time of King David, look at this. But I could zoom in and be like, but is this what Judaism necessarily looks like? And can I find myself exiled again, potentially, because of the shenanigans that happen over here? And is it worth these sort of political fights and how this is manifested? Uh, so I would say I'll, I'll stop off with that little tangent, but you can let me know about your thoughts. Oh, my goodness. That was a good tangent. That was a good rant because there, there's just so much in it. And, um, yeah, like I said, this is a five-hour live stream, and I'm running out of time right now. But I wanted you to hear that little rant because, okay, so on one hand we've got Jordan Wood, and he becomes a Christian. And, well, he's, well, he was a Christian, but now he goes into origin and historic Christianity. And historic is one of these words, like, you know, that, that word's gotten retconned. Um, how are we going to deal with that word? And here, Rabbi Rafi Mullet has, has, you know, grew up in this broken home. Secular family, his father became observant. 
Um, and then he found this beautiful life and went to Israel and found a wife and has had some children and is teaching Torah and has a promising career as a teacher and he's been to New York and Seattle and Houston and all of this and so now he's online and he's using online to, tools tools to help activate dormant or secular Jews into being observant and now, of course, Hezi is on sort of the other side of this circle saying, yeah, but I, I'm supposed to be living the dream here in Israel because uh, this is kingdom come. And, and of course, this sort of rings true for, you know, longing for Constantinople or, you know, finding finding the truth in Rome or or maybe even Grand Rapids, Michigan, for those of you who know the Christian Reformed Church. Um, yeah. Ground center here in the meaning crisis. It is ready for the changes that are happening. Do you think those changes are different than before? Do I think the religious community is ready for the changes that are happening? And do I think, what was the second part? Do I think those changes differ from the changes that Judaism has dealt with all its life? And I'll just put into context, there is an issue in Judaism called Aguna. And this is, to be very brief, an issue with uh, uh, if a uh, husband, if a woman and husband decide to uh, end their marriage, but the husband is uh, being very difficult with giving his wife his get, her, her, her divorce deed, uh, he could uh, essentially hold this over her head and not allow her to achieve uh, a single status, which means she can't marry. And there are other ramifications for uh, the fact of if, if she has children uh, with someone else during this uh, limbo status. And what does that mean now? There are solutions around this. However, it's been many, 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 many years since there's been headway about this. And my point is about this is when I've challenged other rabbis about this, I told them, 40 years ago, you wrote this article. It's 40 years since, there still is a movement, and I'm saying that's small potatoes compared to AI getting into someone's brain and then us having that discussion. And is it is it crazy of me to think that that's not 200 years from now? That is, it's knocking. And, and I, I think about the Christian Reform Church debated women in ecclesiastical office from the 70s into the 90s. And the Christian Reformed Church has been dealing with um, homosexuality, same-sex marriage since the 70s. And Hezi's point here is the speed and, and just the speed of culture in an internet age versus the speed of religious communities and their sense-making. The differential here is really, really difficult in religious communities. And a lot of what this does is if law, basically it throws everything back to law. Because at least in a place like the United States, now how this will go in Israel, I don't know, but a place like the United States, well, part of the promise of secularity is that maybe if your church doesn't like the fact that you need a divorce and you're getting one, you can walk away from your church. And if you can't walk away from your church, then they're going to be called a cult. So, you know, this gets back in some ways into our marriage crisis conversation. A lot of what she said, particularly 
about the rapidity with which times are changing, so to speak, in quotation marks, more than has ever been. In other words, where a generation used to be 20 years or 50 years, right? A generation is now two years and it's probably going to be even quicker. Meaning what I mean by that is I, I, I have kids. I have three teenage daughters and the challenges that my teenage, my eldest daughter had when she was 14 and 16 and now 18 are totally different than her sister when her sister turned 14 and then 16 which is totally different from what her sister faced now that she's 14. So it's like the, in, in, in a different, putting in a different way, my 14 year old is now dealing with the things that my 18 year old is dealing with. But she's 14. And so is my 16 year old. She's only 14. She didn't have those extra years to catch up because the, the the world has changed so much from the time my eldest was a freshman in high school to the time my youngest is a freshman in high school that my youngest's challenges are totally different than my eldest's challenges and my the the gap between the way my kids are kind of turning out if you want to put it that way from the eldest to the youngest is so huge um just because each one within those few years, less than a handful of years, are coming into a completely different world than their sibling did two years before that. When they entered high school, they entered the world of social media. When they entered the world of cellular phone technology and, and the like. So, you know, my wife and I are in touch with that. And we definitely have to contend with this constantly now, now he gets into this a lot in terms of a kosher phone which was fascinating where okay the rabbis are okay these are the apps that you have to have on your phone but then that a little bit later i should find this section it's hilarious telling me i'm going a little bit of a tangent but no, somebody was telling me my kids were telling me my my daughters were telling me that the new drug dealer in yeshiva imagine the yeshiva this is this is the place of torah learning this is our the 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 four walls of the of the study hall that are going to yeah. protect us, and I remember when I'm going in a tangent within a tangent. Remember when cell phones became ubiquitous, and Rabbi Wallerstein was lamenting how the Satan, right, Satan has finally found his way into the into the study hall. It used to be the study hall was our was our sanctuary, was our safe haven. We went into what the Gemara says, right? What does the Talmud say? If if the evil inclination grabs hold of you, what do you do? You you grab hold of him back and you drag him to the study hall and you you sit him down in the study hall and you study Torah. He can't have power over you there, and that's very profound and it needs to be understood. But that's another conversation. But I remember he said, finally, the Satan has found a way into the base medrash because now everybody's got in their pocket this little machine, and this was before smartphones, where you know, you, you could watch, he says, you could watch the boys in the study hall, watch them like Pop-Tarts, like Pop-Tarts. You watch all of a sudden one pops up and then of course another guy pops up. Everyone's popping up, pop, pop, pop. And they have to walk out. Why? Because their phone's buzzing. They got a text. They're getting a call. Right. So when, when that started happening, I remember in Yeshiva by us, they put a sign on the wall. No, no cell phones allowed inside. You have to leave it out. So you can't bring it in unless 
you're in the kolel and you're married, your wife's nine months pregnant, whatever it is, you know. But he finally found a way. Now that's just today. And today, what do we? So back then it was like no cell phones, no texting. No. Now we're like, okay, listen, let's let's put filters on the phone so there's maybe there's no video capability or no pictures, but like texting already where. We, we've, we've... And, and again, I can just hear these things in small conservative Christian communities. We've, give, we've given up. In other words, the, the, the walls are caving in slowly. We can't, we're, we're, we're losing that battle. And, um, but so, is it even the battle we are supposed to be fighting? Or oh, is that we... So, okay, so, so, so here's, here's where I'm going in my long-winded way. My daughter, I just want to roll back to the tangent. To my the daughter tangent. is telling me, that the new drug dealer in yeshiva, it's not like it was before, you know, not that I ever encountered this, but one might imagine someone is, you know, he's peddling over here some type, some type of uh, controlled substance. He says, now it's smartphone plans, meaning everybody has to have a kosher phone. Kosher phone means that the parents have put filters on the phone. It's approved by the rabbis. It has a shtemple, you know, seal of approval. The rabbis say this smartphone you can have because we have stripped out of it the ability to damage you too much, right? So the kid has his kosher phone. Okay, mom, I'm going to yeshiva with my kosher phone. Hey, rabbi, look, I've got my kosher phone. Then behind closed doors, you have a guy. He's dealing phones. He's, he's selling in yeshiva unlocked unfiltered phones smartphones and so everybody's got their kosher phone they walk through the door with but in the other pocket in the other pocket they've got their unlocked smartphones this is the new this is the new drug so our kosher phones aren't working because the kids are finding a way around it the, you're gonna you're gonna block the internet in your house the kid's gonna go to your friend's house and do you don't know what you don't it's know it's also what gonna, gonna end up in his head uh well, that well, let's get there when we get there. But um, you know, in general, my I had a Rebbe, Rav, Rav Naftali Kaplan, Shlita, who who I remember him saying, you know, this imagine just imagine what I'm telling you right now. We're living in Jerusalem. You can imagine this, and we're 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 huddled around this great sage who's teaching us what we call Musr, ethical ethical. Uh, teachings to work on building yourself. And this was a small, I would dare say it's secret. Ethical teachings that work on building. Is that on Chris Williamson's channel? Is this is this wisdom? Good cabal of of uh, Musser studiers, okay, with, with Rav Naftali Kaplan. And he's taking questions from us. And one of the fellows asks, he says a couple of things. He says, my wife wants a new kitchen. Right. I, I, this is really a tangent, but she wants a new kitchen. Right. But it costs money. And it's sort of a it's sort of a value for us to to live modestly. Not only are we poor anyway, but it's almost a value to be poor. In other words, we're not into luxury. We're not into luxury. We want to live a simple physical existence and work on building the spirituality. But she wants to renovate the kitchen. Right. What should I tell her? He says, renovate the kitchen. Uh, he's like, yeah, but money, but gashmi is right, physicality. He said, uh, materialism, right? He, said, he says, no, your your wife breaks her back so you can sit all day and learn Torah like you want to do and you think it's your privilege to do and you think that you're serving God by doing. 
He says, you give her whatever she wants. If she wants a kitchen, you get her a kitchen, right? That was, that's point one. That's a side point. But I want to tell you what, what comes out of the mouth. This is where I'm ultimately going to go. What comes out of the mouth of the Gedoli Torah when we actually ask them is very surprising because unfortunately, and this was something I was saying to another person on Shabbos, the where the, the 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 Jewish media, I should really say, like the Orthodox media, in particular the ultra Orthodox media, the Haredi media, is controlled by a group of small-minded zealots who want to project a very specific message of what's okay and what's not okay. And this messaging is not coming from the Gedolei Torah. It's coming from the small-minded opportunists who have what to gain by controlling the narrative. But if we could get past them to the, the Gedolim and ask them their real opinions, you'll find out that they're much more progressive than the image they're given in the media. Much more progressive. Now, uh, so someone asked with Naftali Kaplan. He said, my, my uh, I don't know if it was his wife or who was asking for it. He says, you know, should we get air conditioning? Should we get air conditioning? Now imagine there's a question to get air conditioning. And as an American, I can't imagine this. But in Israel, it was a very big struggle to have an air conditioner because it was very expensive. So um, most families in our position, if we were sitting and learning in Kolel, in those days, in those days, you didn't have an air conditioner. It wasn't normal. What's that? Said so you had a fan. You had a fan. To have an air conditioner was the lap of luxury. What are you, a millionaire? So he was saying, you know, should he get an air conditioner for his kids, his family, whatever it was? And and Reverend Naftali Kaplan told him, yes, you should. And he said, yeah, but gosh, me, it's right. Materialism, da, da, da. He says, guess what's going to happen? He says, your kids and their friends are going to want to play in somebody's house. Uh-huh. You know whose house they're going to play in? The house with the air conditioner. Now, you don't know what's going on in that house, right? He says, don't you want your kids to to say and to feel and their friends to feel? Your house is the most comfortable place for them to be. And they're going to be in the safety of your home. And that's where they're comfortable and where they want to be. And that's where you want them to be. Make your home the most comfortable place it could be that your children are happy and they want to be there. Now, I'm going to extend this into the internet realm. Mm -hmm. Is that, so you're going to say, no internet in our house, right? So then what do you think is going to happen? They're going to go to the other guy's house for internet. And you don't know what what they're looking at over there, what they're doing over there. So here, bring it back to when I spoke to this group, this is what I said. I said, every piece of technology that's coming into our kids' hands and our hands as adults, although we have more of a foundation to handle it safely than kids who are less mature and, and unprepared for it, right? He says, but you want your kids to be unprepared and to be slapped by these things in a dangerous environment where they where you don't have control and they don't have control? He says, we have to look at all these things as the stick. This is the mata. This is the mata. This is the stick. And the stick is, is as powerful as the wielder. So if you're not going to wield it, somebody else is going to wield it. And you don't know how they're going to wield it. And you don't know what the result of that is going to be. We have to pick it up and we have to wield it. And we have to wield it in the way that we know is, is 
useful and productive and healthy to do. And if we shy away from it and say, us sir, us sir, us sir, I promise you we're going to fail. And I, and, I, and I promise you this is going to be the, the destruction of the next generation. So, so is he team winsome? Team accommodation? Boy, just when I, when I came across this, art, this conversation, I just thought, wow. The repeat of how many things. In the, in the 1920s, the Christian Reformed Church wrestled with worldly amusements. No movies, no card playing. You could play rook, but not cards with, you know, kings, queens, aces, these kinds of things. How many different, how many different communities have, have sort of gone through this? And again, back to up to Yosef's little speech towards after I jumped into this thing. Can't find it right now. I got to get home. Um, but anyway... Why do I, why do I do what I do? I do what I do because it's fun, it's helpful. I'm learning a ton and making new friends and yeah, leave a comment, participate. We we need each other to figure this stuff out because it's really hard.